Good morning. It is uh, great to be with you this morning, and it's a real privilege to be able to open God's Word. Uh, We've been studying Romans over the last few weeks and months, took a week off last week from Romans, but um, what an, an amazing uh, what an amazing book to remind us of the truths of the gospel of grace. So I'd invite you right now, if you have your Bibles, to open them to Romans chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. There are ushers coming up and down the aisles. We'd be glad to give you one if you forgot it or if you just don't have one. Uh, please keep it. Uh, but we're going to be looking at Romans 8 this morning. We're actually just going to be focusing on the last few verses of this chapter, uh, verses 31 through 39. And one, uh, one commentator has said this about the verses that we're going to look at and about the whole of chapter 8. He said it's sort, of, it's sort of like you've reached a point where you come over the top of a mountain and you can look back and survey everything that, that you've just seen. In other words, what he What he means to say is that Romans chapter 8 provides us with the perfect opportunity to look back and remember everything in Romans chapter 1 through 7. And the reason it provides this opportunity for us is because chapter 9, at the beginning of chapter 9, Paul does shift his focus just slightly. And so chapter 8 is this kind of final summary of all the things that he's been talking about up to that point, going all the way back into chapter 1. So I want to just think about some of those with you before we even get to these verses. You remember at the beginning of this letter, Paul has this very important statement where he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And then he gives two reasons. He says, because it's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. In other words, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because when it's proclaimed, people are saved and lives are changed. And he says, secondly, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. And he goes on in the chapters after that to explain what he means. He, he describes for us how what we read in the gospel tells us that, that we are sinners. It confirms for us this truth that all human beings are sinners. We're sinners by nature and we're sinners by practice. And because we're sinners, Paul says, we're under the just condemnation of God. In other words, because God is holy, because God is without sin and he cannot abide with sin, God, in fact, needs to judge sin. And all of us are sinners, so we're under the judgment of God. But, Then Paul goes on to describe how in Jesus Christ, God has provided, and there's a word he uses, justification for those who come to Christ in faith. And what he means by that is that, what he means by justification is he means that we've been declared righteous before God. And then he goes on to talk about how that justification leads to our growth in Christ, our sanctification God not only saves us, forgives us of sin, and gives us hope for the future, but he also continues to work in us to transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. Then we get all the way up to chapter 8, and at the beginning of chapter 8, in verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He talks about 
what that fact of no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus means and the implications that that has. And one of the implications that that has, and perhaps the most striking one for us, comes in verse 28. In verse 28, Paul says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. That's really an, an arresting sentence. God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and who've been called according to his purpose. And I think as we reflect on that verse, probably as you reflect on that verse, it's very difficult to, to really grasp and to believe that that's true. It, 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 we know it's there, it's fairly clear, but all kinds of questions emerge in our minds. Well, how can this thing that's happened to me, or this circumstance I'm facing right now, or this relational conflict, or this family problem, how can, how can God work through all those things for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose? It's a difficult question. And Paul, I think, anticipates the fact that we would find that difficult. That that would raise questions in our minds. And so, in the verses that we're going to look at this morning, Paul actually raises questions for us. And he answers them. And they're not questions about your particular situation or my particular situation, But they're questions that really give a framework for understanding any situation we might find ourselves in. And so actually, verses 31 to 39, which we're going to look at, are a kind of unpacking of verse 28. All things work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to read these verses, verses 31 through 39 of Romans 8. Then I'd like to pray again. And then we'll look more closely at them. So let's read these verses. Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing 
will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for its reliability, its truthfulness. We know that these words are your words. We thank you that these words that you've given to us are living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and able to pierce through the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And so we pray that you would take your true and reliable and holy word, your living word, and by your spirit, cause your word to do its work in our midst. We pray that you'd convict us of sin, that you would train us in righteousness, that you would equip us for every good work. We pray that in our midst this morning, through your word, you would glorify your son. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. You know, when we try to unpack verse 28, we usually try to defend it or explain it to ourselves based on circumstances. So we read verse 28, all things work together for the good of those who love God, and we, and we look at our circumstances, and it's very hard to reconcile this verse with what we're experiencing. But we do something like this. We say, well, I can, I can see you know, some good things that are happening in the midst of the difficulty, and, and therefore that helps me, you know, grab a hold of verse 28. Or, or perhaps we can't see it at the moment, but we look back in retrospect and we say, these things that happened to me, I can see the thread that God was doing, uh, the thing that he was doing that was at work in my life, and so, and so that helps me sort of understand and believe verse 28. Or, or perhaps we, we can't even look back and see anything particularly good, and we can't look now and see anything particularly good. So we just simply say, well, one day, you know, maybe a year from now, maybe a week from now, I will be able to see that verse 28 is true for my life as a Christian. And all those things, all those ways of discerning God's work, God's providence in our lives, can be, can be useful, and in fact, I think we ought to do those kinds of things. We ought to look and see how God's at work and what good He's bringing about. But you know, they're not ultimately going to fully persuade us, and they're actually not the method that Paul uses to explain verse 28. In fact, what Paul does is rather than looking at his circumstances and, or looking at any individual set of circumstances and saying, see here, see what God is doing, what Paul does is Paul actually raises five rhetorical questions, five questions to which he provides the answers, uh, five rhetorical questions that deal with who God is and what God has done. In a sense, what Paul does is instead of trying to unpack and exegete our own situation or his own situation, what he does instead of looking at the circumstances is he looks at God and he asks five questions about God, five theological questions in order to make it very clear that what he has just written is true. It's true for his life, it's true for your life if you're a Christian. So let's look at these five 
questions and see how it is that Paul goes about building his case. Question one is in verse 31. He writes this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? That's the first question Paul asks. If God is for us, who is against us? This is a very important question to start with. You know, if you begin reading the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, the very first thing you read is in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible begins with this truth about who God is and who all of us are in relation to him. We are creatures. He is the creator. In fact, we read, he created all things, both visible and invisible. So he created all the things that we can see, and even all these powerful spiritual forces that the Bible tells us are at work that we can't see. God created all of them. He, as the creator, is not the same as his creation. And he, as the creator, has oversight and control and power and authority over all that he has created. Now, now why is that important? Because what Paul's saying here is, if God's the one, if the creator is the one who is for us, then who else or what else could possibly stand against us? In fact, if you look through the Bible, there are a number of stories that reinforce this kind of thing. Again and again, we see God's people surrounded, uh, beaten down, but God is for them. God is working in and through them. God is going to rescue them. And so, whatever they face, in a sense, is irrelevant because God, the Creator, is on their side. One of my favorite stories that illustrates this, I think, so vividly is in the book of 2 Kings. In 2 Kings chapter 6, you have this account of the prophet Elisha. And Elisha has, uh, has made an enemy of a king, which isn't you know, normally a, a great idea. And this king comes against him and uh, really is, is, is dead set on, on killing Elisha. And so he sends this army to surround Elisha. And Elisha uh, has this servant who's with him and the servant says to Elisha, you know, we're, we're, we're dead. What, 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 is, what can possibly happen here? And Elisha says, no, no, don't worry. God, God's going to rescue us. The servant can hardly believe it. And Elisha prays to the Lord and says, Lord, open, open my servant's eyes. And instantly, God grants this request. And the servant sees all these previously invisible Armies surrounding them, horses and chariots of fire, it says, surrounding him. And he realizes what Elisha knew, which was if God was for them, even though it appeared that they were backed into a corner from which they would not escape, God was for them. And so who could stand against them? We see this kind of thing in the story of Daniel. And the story of Daniel's friends. Remember 
Remember what Daniel's friends say as they're about to be thrown into a fiery furnace. They won't bow down to this idol that the king has made. And they say to the king, they say, um, you can do what you want. You can throw us in. If, if God wants to save us, he's perfectly capable of doing that. And then they go on to say, and even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow down to your idols. They knew, they knew if God was for them, if God wanted them to end up not dying in the midst of this, then, then he could certainly overcome anything that the king was able to do. See, Paul recognizes this. Paul recognizes that the God that we're talking about, the God who has promised to work things out for our good, for the good of those who love him, is a God against whom no one can stand. You know, I grew up not too far from here, just a few towns over in Richboro, and um, the neighborhood I lived in, we had uh, a lot of kids my own age. Actually, right when we moved, there were just a, a number of kids uh, who were within one year of me. So whenever we wanted to get a, a game together or, or do something, there were lots of kids. We were all the same, you know, roughly the same size and in the, in the same age. And um, so, so it was a lot of fun, but one of the things that would happen occasionally, very occasionally, I remember only a handful of times where this happened, but occasionally we'd be in the middle of a game and I would convince my brother, who was four years older than me, to come out and, and play on whatever team I was on. And it did not matter what the score was. It didn't matter what we were playing. It, it, none, none of it mattered. It didn't matter how the teams were divided up. As soon as he got on our team, it was, it was over. And, and, and t- typically, typically there were injuries that would ensue. It wasn't, it wasn't just the, the score. And, 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 and you see, this is a microcosm. We're talking about four years uh, to a middle schooler. And Paul says, now think about this. If God is for you, if God's for us, who can be against us? All kinds of things that we fear. Fear for ourselves, fear for our children, fear for our future. And yet, do we think about who it is that has made this promise in verse 28? Well, the second question Paul asks is in verse 32. And this question delves even deeper into the nature of who God is. I will say, just speaking personally, this verse, this 832, is one that I return to again and again and again in my own thinking as I go through the circumstances of life, difficulties, and things like that. Here's what Paul asks. Here's the rhetorical question. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Now here what Paul's doing is he moves from the nature and the power of God to the way in which God has identified himself in and through Jesus Christ. Paul Paul says, he is the God, the God who made these promises, is the God who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. 
Now, Paul's actually taking a line from the book of Genesis, from a very important story in the life of Abraham, maybe the most important story in the life of Abraham, certainly one of the most vivid. You may recall that Abraham had walked with God for many, many years, decades, and God had promised that he would have a son. And he was very clear, in fact, that it would be a son from his own wife. And, and, and in fact, it, this happens after decades. This happens. Abraham and Sarah, although very old, well past the age of childbearing, they have this son, this promised son, Isaac. And then God says to Abraham one day, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice Isaac. I want you to go to the mountain that I will show you, and I want you to sacrifice Isaac to me. And it's hard to even imagine what would have been going through Abraham's mind, but he obeys. He, he, he takes Isaac with him. He takes these servants to the mountain that God had shown him, and he leaves the servants behind, and there's this very poignant moment where Isaac is confused. Where's the sacrifice? And, and Abraham says, don't worry, God will provide the lamb. And, and, and Abraham and Isaac, his only son, walk up the mountain. Abraham's going to kill him. And, and they get up there, and, and the altar is built, and Isaac is apparently tied down to the altar, and Abraham is raising the knife to kill his only son. And, and, of course, God stops him. And God says, you know, no, I've provided this other ram. But, but then God has these words. He says, now I know that you fear me because you have not withheld your son, your only son. And Paul actually takes a quotation from that story of Abraham and he applies it here to who God is. God is the God who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. Think about the, the magnitude of that. Think about the way in which God is identifying himself. There's a little book I have on my shelf. It's not, uh, it's not really a book I would, I would recommend too highly, but it's by a theologian by the name of Nicholas Wolterstorff, and, uh, and, and, and he usually writes very difficult, big books, but this is a little thin book, and, um, and it's called Lament for a Son. And what he's describing in this book is a sort of a little memoir that he wrote, and he's He's talking about the death uh, of, his, of his son uh, in a mountain climbing accident. And uh, Volter Storff's son died when he was in his early 20s. And again, it was, this, it was this terrible accident. But there's a very poignant quote right at the beginning of the book where Volter Storff says this. He says, if someone asks me, he's, in, he's describing a, a dinner party. If someone asks, who are you? Tell me about yourself. I say, not immediately, but shortly, I am one who lost a son. Now, you know, 
probably it's the case that this shouldn't have been at the center of his identity, but we can understand why it was. This very accomplished academic, this learned man, written all these things, spoken in all these places, and yet, and yet what is deepest in his self-identity is this, this accident, having lost the son. And you can see what Paul's doing here. He's saying, when you think of the God who makes this promise to you, remember that this is the God who did not spare his own son. This was no accident. He delivered him over for us all. And we read in the Gospels, Jesus himself says, I'm here to do the Father's will. I'm doing this freely. This is the God who has made these promises to us. This is one of the very first things Paul says, one of the earliest writings we have of the Apostle Paul. He talks about his conversion when he came to faith and he, he talks about Jesus Christ as the one who loved me and gave himself up for me. And that's true of God the Father. He's the one who did not spare his son. And notice what Paul does. He moves from the greater to the lesser in verse 32 and says, if he did not spare his own son, then how will he not, together along with him, graciously give us all things? In other words, if he did that, then How is it even possible to imagine that he has anything but our good in mind? If he did that, what else else could he do to demonstrate his love for you? What what greater, there's 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 no way you go back to the story of Abraham and what else was Abraham going to be asked of by God? What else could God require of Abraham that, that, that would prove more. He, he almost sacrificed his own son. And so, so it is with God. He will graciously, Paul says, not begrudgingly, not in a small way, graciously give us all good things together along with him. Third rhetorical question that Paul asks in unpacking these great promises of chapter 8. Really, the third and fourth go together. They're both um, here in verse 33. And so I'll read them as one, although they're, they're separate questions that you'll see how closely connected they are. In verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Now you see what Paul's doing here. Now he's moved from talking about God's power to talking about God's graciousness and his, his self-identification as the one who's given his son. And now what he does is he moves into the doctrine of justification. And so in order to, 
think about this, to reflect on it, we really have to go back to earlier in the book where Paul introduces this idea of justification. To be justified means to be declared righteous. It's a legal term. It's a courtroom term that was used in the first century. And Paul uses it here not to talk about a human courtroom, but to talk about, in a sense, God's courtroom, the courtroom of God. And Paul has said earlier in the book that we are justified before God, declared righteous, although sinners, declared righteous on the basis of what Christ has done and through faith. So let me just read to you what Paul says, just a few verses from Romans chapter 3. He says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, then what that means is you have been declared righteous before God on the basis not of what you have done, but on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done on your behalf. And so Paul brings us back into the courtroom in verse 33 and says, who will possibly bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. And in fact, uh, Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised and who's at the right hand of God. Now, Now think about this for a minute. If your justification before God, if your declaration of righteousness in the courtroom of God, if that was dependent on what you had done, if that was dependent on how hard you're trying, or how good a person you are, or what family you're from, or what church you attend, if it was on the basis of any of those things, then many, many people could bring a charge against you. And it would be a legitimate charge. You you, you think you're you're good before God? Well, there's a lot lot you don't know. You know, almost, almost anyone who knows you well could bring a charge against you. If if you were justified based on anything other than God's declaration and Christ's work. You see, it's so critical that we understand what's come before in order to understand what Paul's saying here. If, if, you, are, if you are sitting here and, and you, are, you are thinking that you want to be right with God, you know that you're a sinner, the only possible means of justification, Paul's very clear about this, is, is the work of Jesus Christ and you trusting in Him for your salvation. Many people think there are lots and lots of roads to being right with God. But the Bible's clear. There's only one. And it's Jesus Christ and his work alone. And it matters here because Paul knows that that perhaps if, if it were any other way, then charges could be brought against us. We would not be safe in the courtroom of God. But he says, you are safe 
Because, verse 33, God's the one who justifies, and Christ Jesus is the one who died, who was raised again, and who intercedes on your behalf. It's actually a remarkable truth because he's saying that not only is your initial justification based on what Christ has done, but actually Jesus not only died so that you might be forgiven of your sins and declared right before God, but he also, did you see that at the end? Intercedes for you. He's at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. In other words, you may accuse yourself, other people may accuse you. But remember what the ground of your salvation is. And remember who is up there interceding on your behalf. Hebrews 7 really illustrates this beautifully. The writer to Hebrews contrasts the priestly ministry of Jesus with the priestly ministry that we read about in the Old Testament. And here's what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, and the former priests, that is the Old Testament priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. In other words, you need lots and lots of priests because they died and, and they had all sorts of problems. But he, Jesus, on the other hand, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Hence also, listen to this, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is the truth that we read about in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not only is our justification dependent upon his death and resurrection, grounded upon it, and we are united to him through faith, but also he intercedes for us. Matthew Henry said it this way, Christ executeth one part of his priesthood on earth in dying for us. The other he executes in heaven, pleading the cause. And so you see, that's the answer to Paul's questions. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who is the one who condemns? No one. Because Jesus, our high priest, has died for our justification. And is pleading the cause for us in heaven. What about the fifth question that Paul asks? Well, the fifth one comes in verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? And then what Paul does is he outlines a number of things that we might possibly think would separate us from God's loving hand. In other words, we might, we might experience these things and say, God must not be loving me. God must maybe have some general kind of love, but not, not for me as his child. Paul lists them. Will tribulation, will distress, Will persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword? Will any of these things separate? Imagine if you faced any of these things. Famine, sword, tribulation, distress. Does that mean God doesn't love you? 
Well, Paul says, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. It's a quotation from Psalm 44. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And Paul knows every one of these things, by the way, on this list. In uh, his letter to the Corinthians, the second letter to the Corinthians, he says, this is just a little, little summary of a few things Paul faced in ministry. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. Been on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Paul is not speaking from some position of safety. He's actually listing out these things because he himself had experienced them. And do any of these things separate us from the love of God in Christ? This is a helpful uh, counterpoint because some people read verse 28 as if it means their life is going to be easy. That's not what verse 28 says. It says, in all things God works together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And so Paul lists these things and then in verse 37 answers his own question. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. I am convinced, he says, neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, he's down the road, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What is it that you faced in your life? What is it that you are facing in your life that causes you as a Christian to doubt the love of God? You know, this really is the battleground, the goodness and love of God. It's it's very possible to think about God in terms of power and just think God is powerful, He is sovereign, He's in control. But but to really question his goodness and his love. We actually see this all the way back in Genesis. Um, In the Garden of Eden, this is the temptation that Adam and Eve face. They were given everything. They were blessed by God. And yet, the serpent comes and basically calls into question, is God's holding out on you? God's not good. He's kept that thing from you that would be good for you. And And they buy into it. God isn't for them. God isn't good. God doesn't love them. It's the same thing today. I was reading recently uh, an old Puritan writer, and here's what he says. It's the grand design of Satan, the grand design of Satan to lessen our opinion of God's goodness. Satan seeks to hide God's goodness and to represent him as a God that delighteth in our destruction and damnation rather than in our salvation, as if he were inexorable and hardly entreated to do us good. And why? That we may stand aloof from God and apprehend him as unlovely. Or if he cannot prevail so far, he tempteth us to pour unworthy, mean thoughts of his goodness 
and mercy. Paul says, in fact, we can be confident of the love of God for us. We can be confident of the goodness of God. We can be confident that God will work these things out together for our good. Because God is a powerful God. If God is for us, who can be against us? God is the God who did not spare his own son. God is the God who justified. And Christ Jesus intercedes for us. And so none of these things can get in the way of the love of God, which was in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Well, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reminder of your love for us, reminder of your goodness. Oh, Father, this is a great battleground in our minds. We confess to you that we often doubt your goodness towards us. We often think that you're holding out on us, that we need something that you've not provided, that we need to take something that is against what you've commanded in order to bring about good in our lives. Father, cleanse us from these thoughts and may the truths of your word sink deeply in our hearts and do their work by your spirit. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.